We shall go on to the end. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Art of Surrender. Uh, this is episode 17 of the podcast, and today I am chatting with my good friend and ex-colleague and boss, actually, David Brennan, and family, really, a little bit of everything, hey? <laughs> How are you, mate? How's things over in Melbourne? Good everything, mate. Good everything. Good to be here. How's, it, how's everything going over in Melbourne for you? Yeah, it's good. It's look, it's weird. It's really strange. It's strange. Um, where what are we now? We're three, four, four weeks into um, the stage four lockdown. Um, so we've got three weeks to go. Um, it's pretty strange. It's pretty strange seeing it. What was and what is such a, a vibrant city um, be whittled down to curfews and you know not being able to exercise and go outside of this 5k zone and different things it's it's heartbreaking to see um businesses of all sorts hospitality just anything um not being able to potentially come out of this it's it's really pretty sad i think before this we sort of saw it as a um you know it was a means to an end we had to shut restaurants and all that sort of stuff but I think now this this last nail in the coffin is 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 going to be pretty tough for for a lot of businesses to come back from. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of sad. It's more sad than anything. But we've just got to the numbers seem to be improving. We've just got to kind of get there now and um, hope everybody's you know mental health stays pretty solid in this period. We've just got to look out for each other and different things, and then support all the businesses coming back. That's just the most important thing. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird time. It's certainly hope never. Hope we don't have to go through it again, and I hope not any other states have to go through it again. Yeah, hopefully by the time it, it all unwinds, then uh, you know you'll be past the worst of it. And what's the sort of um, what are the rates of infection looking like at the moment, like per day? Yeah, they're coming down. They've sort of been like they peaked at about seven hundred um, new cases a day. With I think the most uh, deaths we had in a day was 25, I think it might've been, or 26 or something. Um, that's come, come down to like below, today was the first day, I think um, it's the 21st of August. So they that came below 200 for five or six weeks, which is pretty good. Um, so it's all heading in the right direction. The, the, the question is where, where do you need to get to, to, um, to get to, you know, starting releasing some of these restrictions. No one knows. I think that's the kind of the, the, the frustration that nobody knows where, what the marker is to open some of this stuff up. But we've just got to keep doing what we can do. It's pretty strict out there. You know, there's police driving around everywhere. There's roadblocks, people making sure you're not going outside 5K zone. There's um, there's number plate recognition that's happening. It's, yeah, it's pretty weird. It's like a, it's a very strange environment to be in. It's 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 odd to describe it to someone who is not in the state as well. Mm. Um, friends and family, you obviously in, in WA and business is, is usual. And you know, people up in New South Wales, they still go to pubs and nightclubs and all this sort of stuff. And it's kind of weird us not even be able to go out past eight o'clock. It's mm. strange. Yeah, it, I've seen the uh, videos on Facebook and stuff like the videos is just an empty city and it's really mm -hmm. it's really weird to see and and it, and you're right it is kind of business as usual in Perth like in many ways obviously there's still a risk of it all but at the moment like we're pretty it's pretty lax over here like it's not like there's much happening so day to day I'm not really walking around too concerned about it but obviously over where you are lockdown and even in Sydney a lot of my mates over there who listen to this and who I trained with are themselves like working from home and things like that so it's a uh, weird times man all around oh yeah i mean this like full masks you don't see anyone not wearing a mask of course it's like you get fined if you do um if you if you don't wear a mask sorry 
I mean, it's, you know, you got to wear masks inside offices if you're an essential worker and you can't go to an office if you're not an essential worker. Um, it's really pretty strict. Um, you, 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 you can't, um, you know, the, the exercise restrictions are really tough, particularly, you know, I used to do a lot of outdoor exercise, cycling and going to the gym and different things like that. that that's probably the, probably that's the, that's the main thing that's affected my life is, not being able to do have that level of freedom and also um, not being able to get out of the city um, over the weekend like that 5k zone is incredibly restrictive like yeah you can do your shopping and all that so it's meant it's meant to be exactly what it is very restrictive but the, probably the thing I miss the most is is being able to you know get in the car and go for a drive down the coast and have lunch at a pub and then come home just like a day trip yeah so that's the yeah. stuff that kind of sucks the most but hopefully we're you know, we can drive it down and we can get to that point where we can start to ease restrictions. But I think it's going to be a long time until we get anywhere near what, um, you know, what other states are. And I think that, you know, the thing with Perth is the problem that is going to happen in Perth is everyone will get an outbreak, right? The, the issue is um, whether people have been too complacent and aren't ready to kind of mask up and do all the stuff that we've needed to do because it, it can get really, really bad really quickly. And that's what we've seen. It got, got particularly bad, particularly quick. Um, so hopefully there's lots of learnings that you know, all the other states and territories can get out of Victoria's issues. And, you know, that doesn't trivialise anybody who lost their life because of this, but it's... Um, you know, it, it's it's something that has to be taken, the learnings from what we've done because a lot of things weren't managed correctly. Yeah, very true. How, how's, how has all of this affected, like, your actual business personally? And if you could preface that by just giving us a little bit of information about what you do. Yeah, yeah, cool. So um, so the business that we, we currently run out of Victoria um, is – a business, you know, which which started when you were working with us um, way back when, um, and uh, the business is called Radium Capital. Uh, it's it's a business that operates in the online finance space or fintech space, so financial technology. Um, what we do is we advance the R and D tax incentive that companies around Australia receive from the tax office. Um, so innovative companies and all tech companies, anyone who's spending money on um, generating new ideas and investing in Australian technology uh, and innovation can receive a tax credit or a tax incentive, 43.5 cents in the dollar, um, back from the government. And um, what we do is we advance that within 48 hours rather than them having to wait 18 months to receive the money. So it gives them growth capital uh, and, in, and reinvestment capital to continue their projects. But at a, at a kind of a bigger, more global scale, um, Corona, bizarrely, not, maybe not bizarrely, but Corona has been exceptionally good for our business. Um, it's, it's sometimes a bit hard for us to be going as well as what we have because a lot of people are losing their jobs and, you know, facing downturns and different things. But what has meant what's happened is all of the other capital sources in the market have dried up and we've um, been constant. So we've had some record months. We were sort of growing between, you know, 75 and 150% year on year um, compared to the, the prior year or the month of the prior year. Um, so, yeah, we've been going really, really well. Um, we've got uh, all of our operational business where, Brad, you know, you used to work at, uh, still based in Perth, mm. still the same crew, a lot of the same crew are based in Perth um, doing this and they're kind of business as usual. They're not coming into the office as much as what, you know, not five days a week, but they're coming in several days a week um, and then, you know, sometimes working from home and then we've got sales and origination and business development on, um, on the East Coast and that's the, the team that I lead over here. Um, so we've got six staff over on the East Coast now, um, all in Victoria with the exception of one who's in New South Wales. Um, and we're all, you know, working from home and sometimes having some face-to-face -face interaction when we could um, to sort of keep ourselves sane. Um, and that's, uh, it's worked pretty well. You know, there's, there's, there's 
been some real challenges with going remote straight away, but for the most part, we're pretty happy with the way we've done it. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, it's been, bizarrely, it's been a good time for us. Mm. Is it, do you think that the success you guys have had, is it, is it like multifaceted? Like you mentioned that they, capital had dried up, so obviously other people need to find it, so you're um, one way to do so. Do you, but have you experienced any sort of um, opportunities to lend to people who have innovated during this period? Because I think yeah, Corona has forced people to innovate, yeah. which means that that, that sort of innovation is probably going to fall under the scheme that you're lending through. Yeah, there's been there's been kind of two there's been sort of three cohorts of businesses businesses which have um, their business model has been tested and they've struggled so they need the money faster than ever right so that's kind of a survival mm-hmm. side but you know JobKeeper has helped a lot of those businesses get through this period which is which has been good it's done exactly what it's meant to do um, then you've got the businesses which were um, you know, operating in biotech, med tech and all of the advanced sciences who have kind of just accelerated their projects because, um, because they've needed to or they've you know, had extra demand for, you know, changing some of their products around and or there's been sort of trials that they have had, you know, their, their particular um, formulation um, needed for and different things like that. So that's been pretty interesting. So that, that's really quite accelerated. And then you've got the companies which have retooled to make, um, you know, use their existing manufacturing lines to start making different things. We've got a business which is a really, really interesting business, um, which was making, um, I suppose the best way to describe it is like a smart locker for apartment buildings and high-rise office buildings, which was um, like a refrigerated um, parcel locker for the, for the best, best way to describe it. Looked like a school bag locker, which, you know, you could scan in and scan out and the Australian Post could deliver it to it, but it was private. Yeah. Um, they, that, that's obviously like a sheet metal um, uh, production line and they retooled and, um, and rebuilt or used the same manufacturing facility to do... Um, the the hand sanitizer stations that you just kind of hold your hand under and it squirts the sanitizer into your hand um, but that's the front of restaurants bars and um, everywhere over in Melbourne now so that's kind of cool that some of those businesses have have made a um, a pivot into something that's you know applicable for Corona and I think those sorts of things you take for example I think we're going to see hand sanitizer everywhere now forever mm. um, it's just one of those things which is just going to become part of our lives. Like I hadn't ever bought a bottle of hand sanitizer in my life before Corona. And now you'll just never see it anywhere. You'll never not see it in any public place. So it's pretty interesting how some of those businesses have created a whole new segment um, based on their existing manufacturing. So yeah, we're pretty pleased with some of these businesses that are kind of cool. They've done it fast. Um, Yeah. We're just, we're there to support them. Uh, It's it's interesting how things change. Hey, like, um, something like this pops up, no one expects it, and then people just either opportunistic and and jump on the opportunity to to make profit or to to do whatever, or they um, are forced to. Yeah, it's um, survival of the fittest, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> These businesses, are, are, uh, you know, they are run by deeply passionate founders um, who. They're innovative by their nature, so they love what they do. They want to be involved in the game forever. Um, and if it means that your product is not going to sell, and you've got an idea to sell hand sanitizer stations, just do it. Like it, that's kind of the the mentality. It's the you know the Nike mentality, the Nike the saying, but it's there's nothing more true. Like they've just they've got on with shit and just done it. Like it's, mm. it's really inspiring to see that level of, um, uh, that level of innovation and, and just the speed that they can, um, the speed that they can change these business models is pretty impressive. I was, uh, so I was going to, uh, pivot if you can myself <laughs> and bring, bring us onto the um, topic we're going to uh, discuss today. If you're good to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Man. I probably should have outlined this at the very start, but so this is a little bit of a different episode for people. Um, 
David himself, I mean, maybe he has a little bit of martial arts experience, maybe some boxer size or something that we can chat about if you, if you want to. But, um, this episode is more, he has, it has an interesting business, um, back in the past. And I thought that this might be something people would be interested in listening to. So here we are doing it. Um, do you want to, I guess, just from the top, give us a little bit of a background on it? Yeah. So the, the kind of the first business that we started before we got into online lending and, um, get, get to where we were was, um, was a business that we created called, um, in, like I, I love, you know, combat sports, particularly boxing more, more so than MMA and, and different, um, you know, other martial arts, but, um, had probably been introduced to boxing through my old man um, who's just obsessed with it and um, never had any professional fights but has done it for exercise for a long time. He did one of the white-collar boxing events and, you know, is seriously fit and in shape for his age. Like, he's, he just loves it. Yeah. And um, we came up with this idea that was... Um, well, let me take a step back. This is in 2012. We were, um, well, he was originally um, sponsoring and helping Erin McGowan, who is a, a female boxer from a world champion um, from, from Western Australia. I think she won the WBO um, world championship. So incredibly impressive um, girl. And we were, um, we were sponsoring her and dad was, um, sort of helping her out with her her career and getting to her, where she is today, which which has been great. But she was being trained for her title fight by Jeff Fennick. And, um, you know, Jeff Fennick, for everybody who knows, he's just, he's a larrikin as a person, but also um, an exceptional boxer, has had an amazing history and is who he is because of um, his personality and his skill. And... Um, Dad was given the opportunity to meet him and then by, by that introduced him to me. And, um, and we were sort of talking and, and he knows everyone, right? He knows all the, he knows every boxer in the world. You know, he trained Mike Tyson. He's, he's fought with other people. He's recognised, obviously, in that era of, um, as, as when the WBC was getting really big and um, he obviously a triple world champion. Like there's, he, he basically knows everyone in the industry across boxes through to promoters, through to agents, everything. Mm. And he, he said that he, he sort of, I had an events management background and loved organizing parties and events and all this sort of stuff. And he sort of came together and said, um, look, there's all these boxes out there that are, you know, not doing anything with their fame. You know, they're, they're, they love their fans. They absolutely adore meeting their fans and doing things with them. And, and that could just be shaking their hand or having dinner with them right the way through to, you know, book signings and golf days and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, increasingly there was real relevance to um, or, or recognition that there was some real um, damage being caused by combat health right so getting hit in the head and there was um obviously some mental health issues that were coming out about this and um people falling hard on their luck you know after their careers and these are the guys who were boxing in the sort of 80s and 70s 80s 90s so there was kind of this perfect storm of you've got all these guys who love meeting their fans some of them who had no cash and just wanted to become relevant again and and, and really um, and really get more immersed in their fan um, connectivity. And then us as the events management people, and we're like, if you put all those three things together, maybe you can introduce all these fans to people who they would necessarily never think they could access. And every single person across the board wants to meet a few of them. They want to meet Mike Tyson pretty much just because he's just a badass. And like Man. sick, you've got so much more cultural significance than just being a boxer. People want to meet, like, you, you know, if you had a Vander Holyfield on the street, as an example, only boxing fans would know who that is. We put Mike Tyson there, every single person on the street wants to take a photo of him. Mm. So Mike and Jeff had a really, really good relationship. 
And we kind of started thinking about all these ideas, like let's put, let's put something together, let's put together a um, where we can take fans to meet these guys and have these private experiences with them, train with Jeff Fennick, um, if they wanted to go for it, go have some parties and in, in the U S and Vegas and LA and different things like that, visit some of Jeff's friends and, and, and colleagues in the industry of the boxers and then introduce these fans to superstars. And we, we put that together and that's what international boxing concierge was. We did, we did three trips. Um, we auctioned and sold packages um, of various kind of tiers and they were all, um, all they were for profit, but we were contributing to the WBC's newly, newly established um, pension fund effectively for boxers that had fallen on hard times. So we're working really closely with the Sullivan family who um, at the time owned, I think they still own the WBC or run it at least. Um, and uh, yeah, working really close to them. So they up, opened up a lot of doors. They got us access to events that we would never be able to access just by being ourselves. You know, Jeff was introducing us to um, obviously everyone he knew. We were doing it. Jeff was a, a, a business partner um, in, in the endeavor. Um, and yeah, we had heaps of, heaps of fun, basically just hanging out with these guys. We, we did, you know, world-class experiences that, you know, kind of money can't buy without that level of access through, through a really close friend network that, that Jeff ultimately introduced. Mm. How that's, that's a pretty interesting thing, man. And what, what sort of, um, clients did you guys have and also can you tell me anything about any of the events like any interesting stories from the parties i can tell you way what some stories that are wild that um people's <laughs> <laughs> families probably don't really want to know but um yeah we had some fun times man we had some we had some really fun times it was uh it was um it was interesting. So the, the kind of the average clientele was, how do I probably best describe it? It was like guys who, there was a combination of guys who were like boxing tragics. And I say that as in like just obsessed with boxing. Like I'd say like my old man as an example, just wanted to meet all the guys. And then you had the, the guys who, there was, a, there was like a, one particular event, one particular trip that we did, which was the biggest trip that we did actually who that was full of a lot of guys who had plenty of coin and just wanted to come and party. Like they were, they were guys that you would imagine, you know, just need, just wanted a week away from the family and just wanted to rip it up in Vegas. And we facilitated it basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, it was fun times. We, we there was, um, there was, uh, a, um, that we the, the biggest trip that we did was kind of for this one particular event which was um which was with the wbc so it was an invite only um an invite only black tie event um and it was a, a co-sponsored by um hublot watches and um there the idea of the night was to honor the 10 um 10 best or what they recognized as the best uh, boxes of their generation. Um, so uh, I'd be able to get the full names, but it was it was Fennick, Tyson, Evander Holyfield, um, Roy Jones Jr., George Foreman, um, Roberto Duran. God, I'm t- testing more my, my my knowledge now. I'll 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 come back to the, the the others there, but that basically what they did is they created a one of um, a, a, or two watches for each of the boxes, which was signed by um, by the boxes, and then they auctioned them off. So um, the they gave the box over so the Mike Tyson one as an example. They gave the Mike one one to Mike, which was you know the watch was worth like a hundred grand or yeah a little bit under a hundred grand, and then they they auctioned the other one off. I think Tyson's one went for a hundred and twenty or a hundred and thirty grand. Um, the most expensive one was Roy Jones Jr., which was actually bought by one of the guests that we took. I think he paid 155000 for it. 
Um, and these are one of one pieces, right? So only you and Roy Jones Jr. has that watch. So they're pretty sick. Like it was a pretty cool idea, but that one, it would culminate in this massive party. And um, we, uh, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember like the, all the staff from WBC and Hublot, they, we were like the wildest of the lot. It was, it was like us as this Aussie contingent of like 15 guys were there and Hublot were paying the bill and they left the, we're at this nightclub and like all the boxers were just ordering whatever they wanted. Like, you know, magnums of champagne, smoking cigars inside. Like it was sick. And, um, <laughs> and they left the tab open and like for whatever Fatal reason, mistake. Fatal mate, mistake. They, they, didn't, they didn't close the tab for whatever reason. So we're just ordering drinks all night and then went to leave and didn't pay. And the next morning, the, one of the ladies who was like the press lady or whatever, you know, she came up to me. We saw, I saw her in like the, the lobby in the casino in, it was, it was the Bellagio we're at. And she's like, you guys, you guys stay up all night like drinking on the tab? And we're like, yeah, because no one stopped us. And she's like, yeah, well, you just racked up a $55,000 bill. <laughs> and we're like, I'm not paying that. Like, just be, to be clear, we're, we're not contributing to this bill. <laughs> and then nothing from it. So, like, it was, it was fun stuff like that. These guys just loved it. Like, we were, you know, mm. we were just, it was blokes running the mark. Like, they, everyone had enough money to sort of um, eat their way. We had some... Um, we had a we had a party at um, the, just before we went to Vegas. We we took everybody up to a friend of mine who who you know Carl Coward. We, we yeah yeah yeah. We had a house in um, in LA and had a party up there, and it was you know he invited all of his friends, which was like you know the the LA set, which was pretty fun. Um, and uh, so that was kind of like a, a real Hollywood party. The next day we. You know, we went to Freddie Roach's gym, wild card, and he was there and, you know, saw none of his, not like we didn't see Pacquiao training there, but that's where Manny Pacquiao trains and, you know, superstars train at this, this gym in West Hollywood. So all of those things were just stuff that you just don't ever get a chance to do. Um, and then the, so that was, that was kind of like the whole, whole package and, the, the culmination of all of the, the event was actually this private dinner with Mike Tyson. So we had this deal with, with Mike where we would bring people to Vegas and they would meet him. And I booked out like this private event, a uh, private like uh, room at a, at a really nice restaurant in, um, in Vegas at the Cosmopolitan Hotel. And um, it was like 10 guys. Like it was just, just like absolutely beautiful dining room overlooking the fountains and all this sort of stuff and it was just a an amazing meal and, and Mike Tyson rocks up right so he's he's he comes with his little crew that he, he was with a couple of mates that sort of just drive him around and um and then he met with everybody and 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 just told stories like he's telling mm. stories about the old days with Don King and telling stories that you know all his stories behind the scenes, not just boxing, like, you know, blowing money and all the drugs and all the stories that people want to hear about Mike Tyson, all the stuff that people read about. And he just tells the stories like that. And it's surreal. Like you're sitting in front of this massive dude who, you know, you're in, it's, it's, it's inspired. Like it's awe striking, right? You just, you don't, you don't, you kind of take him back and then, but he's a super engaging guy. So gets photos of everybody, signed everything that anyone wanted. We gave everybody boxing gloves and signed belts and shorts and all this sort of stuff. That was all given to, um, you know, we got all that behind the scenes and then gave that to all the, all the guys that came. Um, and then they used those shorts and the gloves to go and get at the dinner, that, the, the, when I said before, before that gala dinner, you know, they got that glove and they got it signed by Evander Holyfield, by George Foreman. So they kind of used it to build out this pretty amazing signature piece or whatever mm. they wanted signed and to take home. So, it was, yeah, it's pretty memorable. So we did a couple of them um, and that was the whole business. Like it was, a, it was a cracking business, but look, you probably can't, you know, you can't do 10 of them a year. It's pretty, pretty hard on the, um, on the, on the liver. So, um <laughs> We did it a few times and then 
Um, and then eventually just um, I moved on to the, to the, uh, to the, to the lending stuff and, but had an amazing time and have kept all, all of those people as friends that we took to all the events um, and talk about it. It's like just this amazing you know, kind of connection that we've got with all these people who came along to the events. Yeah, that's crazy, man. And I, and I, and I can imagine how much like isn't being shared as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, half of it, no, 90% of it. Like it was sick. We had this one guy, like one guy who was just, you know, he hooked up with his girl in New York and like brought her to the event. And we're like, who's this girl he's with? And like, it was wild, man. Like it was, it was just so much fun. Like I, uh, I just look back at it now and it was like every bit that you would expect from like a Vegas trip, like with the boys. It was, yeah. the, the, the funny thing about the funny thing about all of that is uh, the funny thing is that you're talking about setting up that they were setting up WC at WBC was setting up a pension fund. And the reason why they're doing things like that is because of events like the one you hosted where there was a $55,000 bill and these boxes who it's crazy how they can make um, more money in one night, like fighting, than you know, elite level athletes can make in a year, or people can make in a lifetime. Yeah, and, it is, and, and that's the that's the sad bit about it, right? That's the that's the problem with it is that you know, take Mike Tyson's prime example, and we so we spent a lot of time with him, right, prior to these events. We used to hang out at his house. So he lives about an hour out of Las Vegas in a place called Henderson, so the suburbs. And you rock up at his joint and it's like a beautiful house. It's a big house, but it's not like a, a palace, right? And now, he, you know, since then, since we were doing this, so like 2012, um, he's now made a lot more money than what he has with his... Um, his cannabis business and with his cartoon and all this sort of stuff. But you rock up at his house and it, it's, he's just, he was and just is, he's just like a chill dad. You know, his kids are there. He's sitting on the couch like he's smoking some dope and he's just a kind of, just a, a regular guy. If, if you didn't know he was who he was, mm. he, he would look like a suburban dad on a weekend. Like it was kind of surreal in that in that respect. So we spent heaps of time with him and, you know, he tells us his story, right? He tells us his story and, and he, and he's like, yeah, well, you know, I lost all the money when I was young, like Don King stole some and you know, that, that story is well documented. And, but he, he tells his story. He's like, what did you, like, what, what did they expect me to do? You know, I'm like 18 years old and a couple of years before that, I'm in jail for robbing someone and doing bad stuff when I'm a kid. And then they sign me a contract and give me a hundred million dollars. Like, of course I'm going to blow it. And half of it goes to his entourage and all the hangers on and different things like that. So I, I truly get where, um, you know, the money goes with these guys and why they end up in the position they are. And that's, that's not talking about the health and the, you know, the head injury stuff, you know, some are affected by that, but some are just kind of just down and out. Like they've spent all their money. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the money thing does corrupt a lot of people. Like you get all the hangers on that are taking the money and taking them for granted. And all those people disappear when the money stops, which is, that's the sad part, right? Um, you know, you don't have that continuity of income like a lot of other places. And, you know, boxing, I think, is um, maybe changing, maybe not changing. I don't know. But there's like, you know, your brand endorsement deals are limited. Like, you know, someone like Roger Federer, like you take him, he looks, he's a shiny example of someone who you would like want your children to aspire to as, as a, as a, as a man, as an athlete, as a, as a husband and a family, you know, as a, as a dad and all this sort of stuff. He's sponsored by Rolex. He's sponsored by um, the Barilla Pasta and all these different, like very wholesome brands. I mean, try get try get some of those brands to sponsor Mike Tyson when he's like a badass, when he smoke people. Like it's 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 tough for a boxer to build those um, those you know those brand um, those brand deals. So they have to rely on their their money from their fights. I mean, you know, someone like Floyd Mayweather's done pretty well. Um, 
by, you know, diversifying a little bit. But, um, you know, I, don't know, I hear he makes more money out of all these other stuff than he has boxing. But, um, you know, it's an interesting time. It's, it, you know, how do they, how do they get out of that, um, that stigma of just being like a combat sport guy and how do they start making money elsewhere and, and not having to put themselves in the ring and put it, put themselves and other people in danger to, to make, to make money. It's, it's tough. It's, it's interesting how like a, a lot of these people are probably impulsive by nature um, or they come from hard backgrounds like Mike Tyson, for example. So you can't expect them to, you know, earn $20 million in a night or whatever, and then know how to invest it, know what to do with it, know how to look after it and grow it. They're, obviously they're going to go out, get a hotel room, <laughs> get girls, get drugs, party, run a mark and spend it, you know, and that, but I guess I think that people it's changed over time though, in many ways, um, people starting to look after their money a little bit more. Like you see, obviously Conor McGregor diversified. He's got businesses like a bunch of different businesses. And then that you've seen other fighters through um, their agents have done a similar thing in a different way. So like um, MMA, for example, Conor McGregor has his whiskey and then someone like Jorge Masvidal with his recent fame has like launched um, his own, I think it's a, I think it's vodka. Like a drink, it's like a, obviously he's not competing with McGregor, yeah. but obviously there's the you can see that there's a um, attempt to make a business out of it, and I think they're all a lot of people are getting podcasts and making money off their Instagram. So like the landscape is a little bit different now than it was back then. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's that's good and that's encouraging, right? That's what it's needed to, to get to, because mm. um, you know you're right. All of these guys have. You know, not all, but pretty much all of them have used, at least in boxing, and I'm certain it's probably the same with MMA as well, is, you know, a lot of the, the traditional route was, you know, you did it to stay out of trouble. Like someone, you know, Jeff Fenneke takes an example. He was picked up from the, on the streets and taken to local PCYC to keep him out of trouble, right? And then he was taught to box. Rather than beat people up on the street, it's like, I'll teach you how to beat someone up in a ring and you can maybe make some money out of it. And that's kind of the traditional flow. So you've got this kind of not, not like wild streak that starts, but you, everyone kind of has the same story. So you're absolutely right. I think now, you know, the good thing that has come of social media and all these things is it keeps everyone accountable. You know, like the, the idea that you take the example of Don King, like there's, there's, this, there's this story, whether it's true in part or, you know, even if it's half true, you know, there were hundred million dollar contract, and Don King took a hundred million dollars out of it, right? So, in this day and age of accountability, and you know, everyone knows what everyone's getting paid because of social media and the internet and all this sort of stuff. Good luck, someone taking a hundred like if Conor McGregor got a three hundred million dollar contract. If someone tried to take a hundred million out of it, he would be the first one on Instagram live talking about how the guy's a dog and all this sort of stuff, and he would he would never be able to get away with it is the point. Mm. So if anything, this connected world has made people a lot more accountable and I think that it, it keeps people accountable but also gives everybody opportunities, right? You know, Conor McGregor is a, is a brand outside of the octagon. He, he him himself is a brand. I mean, Mike Tyson, take him as an example, that tattoo on his face is a brand, right? So people know his, his likeness as a brand. So... They're all in, a, in the, the best position they possibly can be now to market themselves. And if they're smart, you can make a hell of a lot of money out of it because people want to be associated with stuff. Like, you know, these, these influencers getting paid, you know, sometimes like a million dollars to post something. I mean, I, th I think The Rock and Kim Kardashian, like they're extreme examples. They get paid like over a million dollars to put a post of a... Um, of any product on, on Instagram. So you know that that brand that's giving them the million dollars is getting paid 10x that in sales. So, you know, if these guys are smart, you can make a hell of a lot of money by building your brand in, in the ring and then going off and doing something smart with it after, after your, you know, after your career or, you know, midway through your career and all this sort of stuff. Like I think if you've got your head switched on, you can, can make some good coin out of it. 
Interesting. I, can I, I want to circle back and ask you about uh, Mike Tyson. You were talking about um, like the dinner and being like awestruck around him. And a lot of other people have talked about like podcasts I've listened to and things like that about the presence when you're in a room with like a lion. Can, can you actually feel that like as another human looking at him? Yeah. 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 It's probably a pretty good way to think of it. Hey, like, so Mike Tyson is not like, um, he is not, um, for obviously he was fighting guys that were physically a lot taller than him. Um, just cause they were, you know, heavyweights and super heavyweights. Um, and he's, you know, he's tall. Like, I, I don't know how tall exactly he'd be, but he'd be five, nine, maybe six foot, maybe. Um, but just a massive unit, right? His hands are like dinner plates. Like I've got a photo with him and his, his hand looks like a bear's paw. Like it's fucking <laughs> huge, right? And you can just imagine, you can just imagine the power of, of, and you watch his old training videos and, you know, he's, like, he's in crazy shape now um, for this, mm. if this match he's, he's doing. Um, but you can just imagine how much power he can generate from that body, right? His lower body is huge. Like he's got huge legs. So obviously boxing, um, you know, you get all of your power out of like your, your thighs and your, your ass and all that sort of stuff. And he had that particular style of getting very low and then uppercuts and different, different moves like that, that that was where all his power was from. But yeah, when he walks in the room, he's, he's obviously there's like, he walked into the restaurant or walked into a restaurant and fucking every single person looks at him right? Because mm. Mike Tyson. So you don't even need to be a boxing fan to know that that's Mike Tyson. So every person looks around, you know, he'd walk through a casino and he would be completely inundated with people. And that's today, right? All he's, all he's trying to do is, you know, come, come to literally come to dinner with 10, 20 blokes in a private room in Vegas. And he lives in Vegas and he was swamped. So imagine that being your life, like all the time getting, getting swamped but yeah there's absolutely a presence when he was in the room and other guys right it didn't it wasn't just him the others the, the, the others probably more so because you knew you knew them as boxers right mike tyson has a presence as a celebrity mm. in addition to just being a, a superstar but yeah you could you could see like there's like a badass side to him that you know if, if you said something wrong to him and he hit you, you're fucking not going to stand up, right? Like, it was, <laughs> there's like a scared moment. Like, you don't want to fuck with this guy. Yeah, sure. yeah. You would keep it, you keep it all cordial, hey? You don't, you don't want him to be, oh, man, like be on the wrong side of it. Super nice, super nice guy, but like, fucking scary, right? Yeah. He's a scary looking dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, being in a room with someone who he might be friendly, but if he wants to eat you, he can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's like you know, he ate his ear. Right? I mean, this is like his shit. He had, had some proper, proper slip ups, right? If you call them just slip ups, but like you know, there's all those stories how he got. He had a tiger. He had a white tiger that he ground down his paws and his teeth and was wrestled with this thing. It takes a different sort of person to say I'm gonna like wrestle with a tiger. Like it's pretty wild, man. You got a couple of screws loose, I reckon, to do <laughs> yeah. that. There's but that. Yeah. So that iconic photo. Sorry, go on. Let's say there's the iconic photo of him standing over the pool with the tiger, like in the water. He's got it on chains and he's just standing in this like massive nappy looking thing. Yeah. He's in his like white jocks in this like zoo. He's got set up in his house. The thing that's interesting about Mike Tyson is, and this is one thing that no one really talks about because well, some people talk about it because unless you met him, you, you don't really know it. But, you know, I said we went, you used to go out to his house and I went out there with my old man. One of the trips before that big trip, I went there with my, my, my dad and we were hanging out there and he, Mike is incredibly intelligent and I'm not saying that um, facetiously, but he's incredibly intelligent in different areas. So very, very into his history and, um, obviously, we'd come from Australia, and Americans like you know, Australia's the end of the earth. Right? They don't they don't know where Australia is. He had Mike Tyson had an astonishing knowledge of Aboriginal history, and like he found out we were from Australia and was talking about Australia, and 
and then started talking about Aboriginal history. And it was just like, holy shit, this guy is, this guy knows something that, you know, we as Australians should know far more about as, as an example. Like he was talking about cave paintings and, and like very specific details about Aboriginal history and culture. And I was like, I was blown away by someone who was so intelligent in that particular, something that was, you know, never taught in his at schooling or anything. He's done that, not, he's done that learning himself. Mm. Uh, and when we went back, we actually bought him a, like a beautiful coffee table book of Aboriginal art and history and, and culture. And he was uh, blown away. Like he just loved it. It was, it was just a, it was a really interesting or different side to his personality that you just didn't, doesn't publicly get spoken about. Um, and it was impressive. That was one thing I take from him that he's an incredibly intelligent guy um, with stuff that he, he knew about. And he knows a lot about um, obviously American history, American native American Indian history. And mm. um, it, it, he just knows about indigenous history of different indigenous cultures around, around the world. Um, it's just impressive. I think it's, you know, intelligent in a way that, you know, he's had so much success in his life with boxing and things like that. And obviously there's got to be some sort of natural, um, you know, intelligence and um, attributes that go with that. And obviously it's not just mental and physical. Like he's got to be a smart person to to be good at fighting the way that he is. It's not just like meatheads sort of like swinging at one another, you know, like it's boxing is a very technical art. So is MMA, for example. So the same kind of attributes that make him successful at that have probably allowed him to find, you know, be intelligent in other ways. Yeah. And, and, you know, like training for anything, like you train to be, a, you train to be like even a, like a, you train to do a, a fun run. It's hard, right? It's really hard, you know, and you train to do, then you take the most extreme example and that's just like, you know, you're doing something for your work or whatever. You're doing a 20K fun run or a triathlon or whatever. Then you take the more, the more I'm sort of coming to discipline, that this, these elite athletes have this level of discipline that they want to be the best and there's nothing they can, there's nothing that can stop them. And even if you do come from the wrong side of the tracks and, you know, you do, you don't come from perfect scenarios, they, or elite athletes possess this level of, um, there's something else that we don't have that they can just train and train and train and don't give up until they're the best. And it comes, it's the same with people who learn as well. People want to be the smartest, you know, that I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you take Tyson's example of, you know, his ability to learn and to study something other than boxing history was just, just because he was disciplined enough to sit there and read and read and read and almost became obsessed with reading. They become obsessed with winning, obsessed with training and getting to be the top of um, the top of the pile. And maybe that's, to, that's learning something to do with that as well. I just, they think they, they possess an X factor that we don't like. It's, just, it's only probably 50 people in the world at one point in time that have what they have. Like it's crazy. Mm. Interesting. Hey, eh? um, I got to say, so, do you have how much time do you have left? Do you want Do you want to talk to us at all about your own your own um, martial arts, or is there not much there to go into? No, uh, well, I don't think you need much more time to do, <laughs> to do that. But look, I mean, I, I like I like the sport. I I, in, I appreciate anyone at an elite le- level. Of I can watch boxing, and I love watching boxing. I like I like watching MMA. Probably not as much as I like watching boxing, but I appreciate the the craft and different things. I mean, I've done some like boxing for fitness and all that sort of stuff, but never a fight. Um, I've gotten a few fights at pubs and stuff like that, but I don't know. That's, um, that's <laughs> on the, that's on the, on the job experience. <laughs> yeah, okay, on the job experience. So look, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have an extensive history of what I, you know, my, my connection to, um, to jujitsu is through you really. Um, and, you know, you've you've told me plenty about it and the camaraderie that it, it builds within um, within the community. And you know, we've got an, we had another work colleague, um, Trent, who who really got into it and is still into it. He's living in Colombia now, 
but he's he's really into it. Um, I got a mate over here in Melbourne who um, is uh, he's really into it. Like so, I mean, I keep getting all you guys convincing me to try um, jujitsu, and I probably should. I like I, I like like my fitness, and it's probably something that I, I should give a go. So I probably I'll put it out there that I'll, I'll give it a give it a shot and see if I like it. I can I can refer you to a couple of gyms in Melbourne, and Trent actually trained at the same gym as me in Perth, which was Kaizen. And when I first um, met him, like we started talking and I didn't, wait, I don't think I knew that he worked with you. And I think, he, I think he, sorry, I think you might have told him about me, but I didn't know about him. And then we sort of started chatting and like it came out that he was working for Kicker. Right. But my head, man, it almost exploded. I was like, yeah just like connecting the dots. Right. And then obviously he moved to Columbia. And so I, I've actually talked to him previously and I really want to have him on the podcast because we, we've been chatting on Instagram for pretty much since he left. We talk on Instagram yeah. a little bit and he was telling me some crazy stories about training in Columbia. Um, yeah, you should. He's a, yeah, you should get him on, man. He's a, he's a cool guy. Like I, I love working with Trent. He's a, you know, like you, we, we employed him not having a specific role in, in place and, have always employed people who have got passion and like, you know, kind of know more to say, like it didn't really matter that you didn't have, um, and Trent had none of the skills that we um, were like, there was no job for a person like him. We just said, here, how about you do this? And then he eventually created an entire position within his, within his, um, within the sort of the ranks of the business. Same with you. Mm. Uh, you know, there's no, like, well, we like to sort of bring on people who we can work with better than just like the smartest people in the room because the smartest people in the room are fucking never the smartest in the room. They're always, they've always got preconceived notions. They're always, you're better to employ someone who's super keen, or I've found it at least super keen and wants to work rather than someone who's like this high level MBA because always they're just, they're stuck in their ways. And I think we've had more success with passion than, um, a piece of paper. Yeah. Interesting that, that it goes that way. Hey, I think so. Mm. All right, man, let's, um, let's call it for now. Maybe we can do another one of these in the future. Uh, s- stay on the line though. I'll keep chatting to you for five, but yeah, I appreciate you sharing the story and I hope that, um, the listeners will enjoy this as something a little bit different to what we've been doing previously. Um, but either way, I had a good time, so I appreciate hearing it, whether everyone else does or not. <laughs> no problems, man. It was a good time. Cheers, mate. See you, everyone. Bye.